Thank you for joining us for the University of Illinois Press podcast, The Upside. I am your host, Elizabeth Hess. I am joined today by Dr. Angaliki Zanatu, an associate professor in the Department of Classics at the University of Illinois, as well as the editor of Illinois Classical Studies. Dr. Natalia Sumpra, an adjunct lecturer in classics at the Short Courses Department of the University of Glasgow, as well as the Classics Department of Edinburgh University, and Isabel Ruffel, a professor of Greek drama and culture at Glasgow. We plan this discussion around the publication of Illinois Classical Studies special issue. Thank you all for joining me today. Angeliki, can you tell us about how you got involved as editor of Illinois Classical Studies? Yes, let me start at the beginning, which is the founding of the journal. So the journal was founded in 1976 by Miroslav Markovich, who was head of the Department of the Classics at the University of Illinois at the time. The faculty and the editors that served the journal made it part of its founding mission to publish work by Illinois scholars at the time. The journal enjoyed from 76 almost up to 2010. Um, It was a healthy publication venue, but as you know, institutions change, and so did the face of the journal. The department had changed at the time, and the then editor, Anthony Augustakis, who then became head of the department, uh, is to be thanked for initiating the collaboration with the University of Illinois Press. It's a little over a decade ago that the journal entered a new phase. It's dedicated to publishing all fields of classics, art, archaeology, reception, and more. But since then, it doubled in size, publishing two issues per year. One was thematic and was published in the fall, such as our current collection that we're discussing today, and one with articles that came from the regular submissions. My story begins in 2014 when I hosted a conference on Asian drama in 2014 in the spring and was then able to collect the papers in the following year and publish them as a guest editor in 2015. That was my apprenticeship, um, as it were, as editor-elect, and I took on the editorship in 2016 until today. I wanted to get involved at the time because I do think that it's a truly important service to the discipline. For the first time, I could see firsthand the trends in our field through the submissions that we received. And really what attracted me a lot was the opportunity to publish the thematic volumes because we are one of the few journals to publish thematic volumes and to do so on a regular basis. At the same time, conferences were a great place to have, again, a first-hand opportunity to speak with scholars about their work and with organizers about their panels on workshops. And I also started inviting them to submit to our journal. So what I like the most is the collaborative aspect of the research that is part of the job of the editor. And I have enjoyed over the past five years, working with uh, junior scholars and working with them closely. And it's exciting to see them publish their first or second article, as well as the opportunity to continue the founding mission of the journal, which is that it is also closely tied to the research that the faculty do. 
also open it up to areas that are gaining interest in the field and more broadly in the humanities and creating impact. That has been, for me at least, especially inspiring. I think that for our students, one of whom also works closely with the editor each year in the position of an editorial assistant, it's especially exciting and demystifying to see how you can kind of have a hands-on experience in the profession. So I'm also incredibly proud of the fact that now we have featured important collections on ancient drama, on disability in antiquity, on gender in Roman poetry, on Aristophanic costume, and on imperial Roman history, literature, and art. Natalia, can you tell me about the special issue? Let's talk about the process of choosing a theme and assembling the contributors for this issue. Yeah, I think it's uh, fair to say that this project has been a long time in the making. So I first became interested in the concept of power in general when I was doing my DPhil thesis, my PhD thesis. So I was mostly working on manifestations of power in plays of Aristophanes and how they're connected with important elements of the social and religious order of contemporary society. And then when I finished my thesis, I realized that something important was missing from it, which was performance and costume. So this is how I came to costume and power expressed through costume. And it was a happy coincidence that one of the seminal studies on comic costume today was published shortly after I finished my thesis. So I finished in 2014 and Copton Engel's book on costume in Aristophanic comedy was published in 2015. And she's actually one of the contributors in the volume. So together with combined interest about issues of performance, I came to this subject. So this started as a conference that I organized in Oxford when I was still a graduate student, so back in 2014. And then we lost some contributors in the process. We gained some others. So some of the original pieces are still in the volume. Uh, We've got some new ones commissioned because we wanted to to broaden the focus of the volume, so to cover more plays, to cover choral elements as well. And Angeliki was very, very excited about the project. I think even more excited than I was, if I can say that. It's been a wonderful experience working with her, and I think the volume has found an excellent academic home. Natalia, you weren't just editor, you also had a contribution. Can you tell us about your contribution to the issue? Yes, so the main issues uh, we were discussing in the volume were how does costume affect our perception of politics, of gender issues, so literary themes, ideology, sexual politics in the comedies of Aristophanes. So I focused on two plays of Aristophanes that feature women on top, so Leicistrata and Ecclesia Zuse, And it's really two very basic questions. So does costume in any way enhance or highlight the woman's dominance over men? And if so, in what ways does this happen? And secondly, what does the use of costume have to say about the performance of femininity in the place? So what does it have to say about gender and how women claim leadership, temporary or permanent, over the city? Because it's quite common in drama and comedy for women in power to be perceived as masculine or androgynous, which is interestingly not the case in these two plays that I examined. So women's femininity is intact throughout, and in fact it's highlighted in both plays. 
So we have, as I said, two plays uh, that feature women on top. So in Lay Sistrata, the way the woman handled her costumes, and uh, more specifically, the way they remove part of her attire or the full costume, alludes to specific ritual practices that underscore women's uh, fertility and fecundity. So we've got the reproductive capacity of the woman and the civic contribution stressed through the use of the costume. And these two issues, so fecundity and reproductive capacity, are basically two important issues on which female leadership is predicated. So costume eventually reveals fundamental concerns about female power in the plays. And then we have the Ecclesia Zusa, where we have a mutual cross-dressing. So the men are forced to don women's clothes because women steal their own clothes in order to infiltrate the assembly. And for men, the forced cross-dressing carries implications of impotency, emasculation, whereas for women, it actually underscores their femininity and becomes an important way to claim the leadership in the city. So basically, in both places, the use of costume is simultaneously an agent of change but also becomes an embodiment of stereotypes because we have a dichotomy between the good women that uh, are trying to restore the marital order and stressing or highlighting the, the important role as wives and mothers in the city. And on the other hand, in Ecclesia Zuse, we have the bad women, in air quotes, that display uncontrollable sexual appetite and reject their traditional roles. So it's a performance of feminism that is based on biological and essentialist roles of women. Isabel, thank you for being here. Can you tell me about your contribution, poetics, perversions, and passing? Tell us a little bit about that. I was looking at a different play. This play is called The Thesmophoria Zutsai, or Women at the Thesmophoria, which is a women-only festival. And the plot line is that the tragic poet Euripides is going to be condemned to death by the women at their assembly that they're holding at this festival. He and his probably father-in-law, who may or may not be called Menizilicus, um, go to visit another tragic poet to try and persuade him to infiltrate this festival and speak on Euripides' behalf. Other tragic poet, Agathon, has more sense and declines. And so they prevail upon his father-in-law to infiltrate the Women's Festival. And so we have a scene of him being forcibly cross-dressed early on, him infiltrating the festival, successfully passing. He's a master by a man who is on the women's side called Cleisthenes, who claims to affect a feminine lifestyle in various ways. And they search the assembly for this intruder. They discover him and he is captured. And then the tragic poet Euripides tries to rescue him. And he does this by trying to play various scenes from his own tragedies, most of which involve this semi-undisguised old man as a female character. Now, this doesn't work. And eventually, Euripides manages to distract the guard who is a Scythian archer who is one of the members of what passes for a police force in Athens. Distracts him by bringing on a dancing girl, a prostitute, to distract him. And Euripides comes on as disguised as the madam at the end to do this. So this play involves a great deal of cross-gender play, starting from the all the female characters obviously being men. They're all male actors. And we've also got all sorts of different modes and means of cross-dressing. So the poet Agathon claims to cross-dress in order to get into his character roles so that he can write them. 
We have all sorts of associations of music with different kinds of gendered positions. We have out-and-out disguise in various different ways, and we have parodies of tragic roles, which also involve cross-gender play in various ways. So there are lots and lots and lots of different ways in which men are playing women, and it's been discussed in, 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 in lots of ways in terms of its relationship to poetics, and it's also been discussed a lot play in relation to gender roles, but I wanted to look specifically at the cross-gender roles from a trans perspective, which hasn't really been done. And I wanted to do this partly from a personal view, because as a trans critic of Aristophanes, um, this is something that I have to negotiate a lot. And it's not something I've really talked about very much, this play, because this is an article that's been in various forms, iterations, developments over the last 20 years, and it's been updated and changed as I've dealt with my own identity. There's been a very close connection here between the academic and the personal. And as Natalia will tell you, I had extreme cold feet about publishing this in the first place. But it's also important politically for me at this moment because there's a big transphobic backlash against any notion of trans history. And so it's important for me to publish this because these are issues that have been addressed and of concern way back to the classical period and beyond. I appreciate it. Thank you, Isabel. Angeliki, can you talk about the cultural gap between ancient and modern performances? If contemporary performances were put on an ancient comic costume, what would be gained and what would be lost? I'll tell you what I think. And I know that Isabel and uh, Natalia can fill in this much better. Just to begin with, Aristophanes' costumes, I mean, ancient drama costumes are very different than modern drama costumes, but Aristophanes' costumes are known as, I think this will be a literal enough term, as phallic dress, because the male characters wore phalluses, leather phalluses, and also had an exaggerated padding around their stomach and also in the rear, producing visually what I think we would call a grotesque body. These costumes, the original costumes, harken back to phallic performances associated with the god Dionysus and also performed at the festival of the city or great Dionysia in Athens, that was the biggest dramatic festival where tragedies, comedies, and the less known satyr plays were produced annually in dramatic competitions. And that's where Aristophanes' plays were produced as well. But also because on the authority of Aristotle, comedy, ancient comedy, derives from what is called the komos, K-O-M-O-S in ancient Greek, which means a ritual revel in the course of which, broadly speaking, male revelers, party goers, intoxicated or acting in drunk ways, as would befit Dionysus as well, sang, danced, and mocked each other or other people. And those were elements that were typical of ancient comedy where we see the abuse or criticism, but always the ridiculing rather, of uh, politicians, intellectual movements and other individuals. So this is the distinctive 
context, religious, social, and political of the world of Aristophanes. So ancient ritual and religion provide the connection with Dionysus and Dionysian festivals. And even though Dionysus himself continues to be an incredibly interesting god for us, also in terms of the themes of gender identity, he is presented as as a cross-dresser, part feminine, part masculine. He navigates all kinds of boundaries of identity. So he remains a formative force, I think, for modern performances as well. But this whole context of the ancient revel of parades with phalluses is, I think, what is most foreign for modern audiences and creates distance. It has been the case that costume and performance settings of ancient comedy are updated for the modern stage. But I think that the connection between the ancient and the modern stage re-emerges even on the level of costume if we look at authenticity, not quite as the reproduction of the original costuming, which for tragedy and comedy also included masks. So again, not a very realistic way and not allowing for the expression of emotion. And also, as Isabel also mentioned, it involved much as in Elizabethan theater, acting by male actors. So I think we can engage all those elements in the here and now differently, both historically and culturally, and if I may say so, allowing for kind of the broad articulations of the comic globally. So I will mention one example from what I think is the late 18th or early 19th history of Aristophanic performance uh, in our native, Natalia's and mine, uh, native Greece. This, the history of performance of this period comes from a wonderful book by Honda Panstein called The Venom Praise, and it tells the history of Aristophanic uh, theater in Greece. So she has collected archival material in which she registers the example of performances of Lysistrata, the sex strike, women going on a sex strike, that was performed in settings that are, I don't want to call them cabaret or bar, I forget what the precise term was, in old Athens, by they were very countercultural because they were Lysistrata shows in drag. And at that time, the society, of course, especially in Athens, this was more avant-garde than anybody could imagine. So there you see the kind of themes of power, expression, articulation, comedy, going far and against current ideologies of politics and gender. So that's, I think, a great example. But the last thing I would say as another example or another feature of the plays is that Aristophanes' plays create utopias. And you can tell from their titles, one of them is called Birds and another is called Frogs. And those plays, uh, as I said, create utopias, other worlds. 
and have animal choruses. So the chorus of the birds and the frogs are actors dressed as birds and frogs. And these have been recreated in such diverse ways in a modern theater, both in this country and in Europe and in Greece. And they create opportunities, I think, for what is fantastic costuming that links back to ancient comedy and shows the possibilities that this reimagining of the world that further plays in today, contemporarily, by modern theatre practitioners, artists and audience and create uh, new possibilities about thinking about what to cite Isabel now, impossible worlds. To cite your book on uh, the politics of anti-realism and impossible worlds. Natalia, you were just mentioned by Angeliki as somebody who could talk about the role of costume in the audience's entertainment. Could you share that with us? Yes, of course. So as Angeliki already mentioned, if we're talking about original comic performances, we have to imagine that they would look very different from what we now know as performances. So speaking strictly just of what we call the comic body, comic padding and the stomach and in the rear, the phallus, which would be dangling or hanging, visible to the audience, the grotesque mask. So all of those elements that comprise what we call the comic body. I guess thinking of this, when we're talking about issues of entertainment, this is foremost a source of visual humor. Probably all critics of Aristophanes, maybe with the exception of one, would agree that one of the most basic points of the comic costume would be for it to be funny and humorous and perhaps anti-idealizing, but funny foremost. So this is why I'm saying a source of visual humor. So just seeing the actors on stage with the exaggerated masks, the wrinkled bodysuits and the big round bellies and ramps is I guess, already funny for most people, maybe on a very primal, basic level. In many ways, the way the comic body was handled on stage related to the content of the place and specific stage action. So, for instance, the comic padding would come in handy when we had instances of toilet humor, scatological humor, which are numerous in Aristophanes, and it's kind of visual exemplification of how that would work. But at the same time, as I said, it's different when you read the text and you don't have this image in front of you, and different when you see it on stage. It's kind of having a huge neon sign when you're reading the text saying butt or penis. So it, it works on this very, very primal level, as I said. Uh, but at the same time, beyond just pure silliness and comic buffoonery, costume could work in more, let's say, less superficial and more deep uh, levels of entertainment. So, for instance, something that Angeliki also mentioned, the satirizing of contemporary politicians. So masks could be worn by the actors that, was, that were specific references to prominent politicians of the time and would be immediately recognizable to the audience. Um, so that would be a different form of entertainment, moving beyond the superficial level and approaching more political satire. And I guess this is something that could be perhaps taken advantage of on contemporary stages as well. I mean, a lot of people have talked about uh, Aristophanes' knights and how the figure of Cleon, the loud-mouthed politician, could refer to Donald Trump or even Boris Johnson for the British audience. So imagine if you had 
a huge mask that depicted one of those two and the character of Cleon showed up on stage and would, I guess, be immediately a source of mirth and laughter and entertainment for the audience. Thank you so much. I'd like to ask Isabel a question about the recurring theme of costume and gender identity or diversity. Does the use of costume uphold or destabilize gender boundaries or stereotypes? I think the answer to this one is yes. It really depends, I think, is the answer. So I think if we look at it this way, you can see two poles on this one. You've got the kind of Judith Butler position on the one side, where drag is inherently destabilizing. And on the other one view which has often been said of Aristophanes is that it is drag theatre in the sense that it's caricaturing women and therefore objectifying in itself or it's inherently caricaturing and reinforcing stereotypes. The truth is a more complicated picture than that. With the issue of the male actors playing women, one of the questions is, I suppose, whether the women are particularly caricatured. And as we've heard already, the grotesqueness is, is universal in Aristophanes. But what's interesting to me is that on vase paintings, if we should trust them, if anything, the caricatures are much more towards the male characters than the female characters. And so it doesn't seem to me, at least, that female characters are being particularly caricatured. So there isn't that kind of skew to it. If you think about the function of cross-dressing within plays and other kinds of cross-gender play, it's true that in many cases it's framed in a very hostile kind of way. And that's true for much of the cross-dressing in the Thesmophoriosusai, for example. So the poet Agathon is particularly mocked by Euripides and his in-law, his relation, Mnesilicus. When Mnesilicus infiltrates the Women's Assembly, a lot of the humour is about the implausibility of this, given what the audience has already seen, which is him being uh, depilated and uh, shaved on stage and dressed up and so forth. And so the audience already knows what's going on, and there's a big distinction between the audience's perspective and the internal audience's perspective of the women at the festival. And, and this is a fairly frequent combination in Aristophanes. The association of men cross-dressing is frequently with various kinds of homosexual behaviour or practice, as is constructed in comedy, which may or may not represent the reality. That said, when Minazilicus, the in-law, gets discovered, things start to change. So the women at the festival and the Scythian archer, who I've mentioned before, and he's a very crude ethnic stereotype, both of these sets of characters refuse to accept that the in-law Mnesilicus can be anything other than male for the rest of the play because they've seen his phallus. And there's a scene where he tries to hide it and it keeps going, he pushes it backwards and forwards and, and then trying to find it. But from the audience perspective, the external audience perspective, they're in a slightly weird position because on the one hand, they know who's who and what's what and all the rest of it, just like the women do. But at the same time, they're kind of willing Euripides and Mnesilicus to escape. And so... There's a lot of humour at the expense of the women and the Scythian archer for refusing to cooperate in this. And so there is both a crude and hostile approach to gender and sexuality through cross-dressing in Aristophanes, but there's also more subtle things going on which seem to work in the other direction. And from a modern perspective, this opens up all sorts of scope for interpretation, I think. But it's also that comedy can't help itself. And I think this is a really common thing that despite the fact that it might be pushing a quite a crude and, and caricaturing agenda, 
the kinds of flexibilities that it relies upon often work in the other way. Again, from a modern perspective, I think the test before, as you say, offers many other aspects that are of interest. And one of them is the many different modes or types of cross-dressing and cross-gender play. And I think this speaks very much to a situation we are in now where there's a much greater recognition of a diversity in cross-gender practice. And I mean, there's been a change as long as this paper's been written. This has changed from a monoculture, I suppose, to a much greater recognition of diversity and a spectrum of practices and behaviours. And for a modern audience, or for a certain kind of modern audience anyway, approaching Tessafori's Usai, there is that aspect to it too. But to go back to where I started with Judith Butler and the idea of drag as subversion, I think one of the things that Tessafori's Usai really shows is that it really matters uh, not only the kind of performance that you're doing, but also the kind of audience, and the audiences really matter. And I think that has lots to say about our current context as much as the ancient context. Angeliki, you have the final word for perspective submissions to Illinois Classical Studies. What topics will get your attention the most? As I said, we like to feature, first of all, as broad international audience as possible. That's why I've been so happy to collaborate with Natalia Zumpra and stay tuned for our next uh, issue in line, which also features an international cast of scholars on the topic of Ovid's Heroides. So this is on gender and uh, Roman poetry, guest edited by Chiara Battistella of the University of Udine. In terms of the thematic collections, we do like to feature thematic topics that have a broad political and social impact today. So not strictly focused on literary matters, but much of the work that is being uh, these days is like that. So I do want to have a final word on something else as well. I want to say something about Natalia Zumpra and Isabel Raffel and this volume. So it was really a great honor for me to work with them because I am a scholar of drama as well. So I have even more of an insider's perspective on the work that is being done. They are doing the most interesting work on Asian drama in the way that matters most to all of us today. Isabel Raffel published Not To Be Missed book in 2014 called Politics, Anti-Realism in Athenian Old Comedy, The Art of the Impossible. And Isabel is actually formulating directions in Aristophanic criticism today, both with the subtle and cute way, an incisive way, I meant to say, the issues of gender and also trans classics today, which is something that we would uh, welcome a whole volume on, but also on the topic of politics. Natalia is working. We are greatly expecting her book, which is in progress on politics in Aristophanes. And here I switch to politics because they are both leading the field in terms of shifting what is politics in Aristophanes about. So ancient, I know I'm taking a lot of time, but it's important for everybody to understand. Ancient comedy is much like 
fun analogy are Saturday night live shows on one level. On another level, however, and uh, we can relate to that, it's also a product of Athenian democracy. And however imperfect that democracy was, and ours continues to be today, it is important to look back and reflect back to Aristophanes. And both Isabel and Natalia are asking us to think about comic ideologies, not as static state ideologies, but are inviting us to think about populism and ideology, a topic that is the most focal for our democracy today and for the past difficult presidency. So this is just to congratulate them and also say that the work that is being done in classics is of great relevance for serious political thinking and for the study of comic humor. I also want to thank Kristen Dean Grossman, who is our managing journal editor, with whom I have enjoyed a marvelous collaboration. So thank you, Kristen. Kristen is such a big supporter of the content of the work that we publish, so we have a fabulous time working together. And thank you, Elizabeth. It is my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the University of Illinois Press podcast, The Upside. The special issue of Illinois Classical Studies is available at researchpress.com. Thank you so much, all of you, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. 